Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. George Knapp, investigative reporter. We welcome you back to the Paracast after far too many months. I mean, we kind of tried to get it together and we didn't. And we're really glad to have you on because we have about 12,933 and a half questions. <laughs> well, I've only got three days to give to you, but uh, we'll, we'll give it a shot. Okay, we'll try with that. Now, I think part of this started percolating in my mind when we were talking to Don Eckert, who, by the way, thinks extremely highly of your work. Don's a great guy. He is a great guy. We love him, and we're we so- miss him in the field too, don't we? Yeah, but you know, he never seems to completely give it up. You know, like every <laughs> few months, he was ready to come back on the show again and tell you why he left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's deal with one of the things here, and I guess we ought to start with the Area Fifty One stuff. Now, you pretty much got started publicly in terms of UFO investigation with Area Fifty One, right? That's true. 20 years ago this year. Okay, so since we're dealing with it 20 years later, how did you get sucked into Area 51? That's got to be a sinkhole. At KLAS-TV, where I work uh, as uh, and a news director, a great uh, journalist named Bob Stodall, who, when he hired me way back in 1981, he had an ongoing interest in Area 51, not necessarily the saucer stuff, but all the secret stuff going on out there. After all, it has been the location of choice for our government, for the testing and development of black projects, basically forever, at least for the last 50 years, since 1955 when the base was created. So, you know, a place that isn't really on the map, doesn't uh, officially exist in terms of the government uh, acknowledging it, that's kind of interesting no matter what's going on out there. And uh, so Bob, when I got hired, it told me about Area 51, and I sort of just sort of started uh, storing stuff uh, in my head uh, about the base. In the mid-1980s, something happened to uh, heighten the the public profile of the base. The U.S. Air Force seized 89,000 acres of public land, just took it. And then two years later, they uh, they got permission to take it. They essentially wanted all that land as a further buffer zone around Area 51. And it sort of raised a lot of questions about why they needed it. Uh, they, they wouldn't talk about it. They, they told Congress they can only uh, describe it behind closed doors. And, of course, that got our attention as well. And then in 1987, I met a guy named John Lear. And John Lear uh, is quite a character, as you guys know, in the UFO field. He had a certain amount of credibility with his news organization because he had, well, also because of his, his father, his family name, but he had run for the state senate, seemed a respectable guy, and he had also helped us break the story of the stealth fighter. John had uh, taken a colleague of mine, Ned Day, out uh, to the area around Area 51, told him that about the stealth fighter F-117 being developed there. Ned broke the story before any national networks or, or any one else and it was a big coup so john comes into the station one day uh with a pile of ufo documents trying to uh, to get ned interested and ned was having no part of it he thought that'd be crazy people would laugh at me if i did this story i was eavesdropping at the moment and uh, i said hey let me take a look at that stuff and it included some legitimate national security military type documents that had been squeezed out of the government through foia and some stuff like mj12 that uh, at best is in the you know kind of the gray basket I, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So I had John Lear come on this show that I produced at the time, a little talk show called On the Record. 
uh, one of these things that runs at 6 o'clock in the morning on, on Sundays that nobody ever watches, and you have the city councilman on, things like that. Lear comes on, and he was just outrageous. At that time, he was uh, sort of uh, spreading the, the Lear gospel. He was developing his, his white paper that became pretty famous and infamous over the years. And uh, he spilled all this stuff out, and I thought, wow. And, and all of a sudden, the phone started ringing, and, and uh, I'm getting all these inquiries. And I had him on again, and he got even more outrageous, and the response was even bigger. And I realized, wow, this topic that I had never really paid any attention to touches the pulse of the public in a way that I did not understand. And so I figured, I'm going to start looking into it. And uh, the, I, I relied on Lear to sort of uh, navigate the waters to, to find out what legitimate information there was. And I figured, you know, I might I might t- start looking into this. And I had Lear on a third time, and to my eternal shame, he brought a guy named Bill Cooper on with him. Uh, you guys know him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Bill Cooper, the infamous Bill Cooper. He came on and, t- and uh, played this tape about the JFK assassination being carried out by his the driver of the car and... And he told this uh, vast, incredible UFO conspiracy tale and um, how uh, the secret government is controlling everything that goes on regarding UFOs. And he was afraid for his life, and this was the last time he's going to talk about it, and he's going to disappear, which, of course, turned out not to be true. Let me ask you a quick question before you go on. Did you take any of this seriously, or was it just, to your way of thinking, some sort of kooky entertainment? Yeah, it was it was closer to that. I mean, um, a kooky entertainment because I became clear to me that some of this could not be proven at all. When I had the third show and the public response was kind of big and and Lear sort of uh, he intimated that he knew somebody that was actually working at Area 51 and had talked about flying saucers. I thought, look, I, I got to look into this. So I asked him to introduce me to this guy. I figured that would be my angle uh, as a way to get into a local angle on the news story about Area 51. And if I could find this guy, if he talked to me, the guy turns out to be Bob Lazar. And it was in May of uh, 1989 that I finally got Lear to hook me up with Lazar. And we had him on this interview with his face all blacked out. And he made these allegations that are now pretty famous. And, and I thought, wow, if even a fraction of this is true, that's a heck of a story. And so I started diving into it. I spent about eight months working on the Lazar story, other stuff as well. My news director and I worked on it. We recognized that this is this is pretty perilous for us to, to pursue this. I mean, because the UFO field is uh, filled with pretty wacky stuff, conspiracy nuts and hopelessly gullible saucer nuts. And, and we recognized we had to approach this uh, like any other story and weed, weed some of this stuff out, which we did. We tried. Ultimately, that's that's how it got me into the UFO topic, and I've never been able to really shake it since. I mean, I've done thousands and thousands of stories on other topics, but I'm pretty sure that when I die, that if I have a tombstone, that's what's going to be carved on it, the UFO guy. All right, let's look at John Lear. When did he seem to unravel in your eyes? Because obviously he started as a pretty credible person, based on what you're telling me. Yeah, well, I, I like him. I don't like to, you know, I don't. I, don't, I, I still like him. I live near him now. I've got a new house up in his neck of the woods, and and I talk to him from time to time to see what he's up to. But obviously, you got to take what he says with a grain of salt. Uh, you can't take everything literally because uh, it changes. You know, the story changes. When he started talking about aliens being here to uh, essentially eat us or uh, to uh, create those alien hybrids and these giant vats. Uh, talking about the underground base at Dulce, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm really going to have to be careful what I what I use from Lear. But he does have really good contacts. I mean, he did fly for the CIA. He knows all kinds of people through his father, through his family name, through his military and intelligence experience. And um, so, you know, you can't 
completely discount him. But you, as I mentioned, you do have to take everything he says with a big grain of salt. So where do you separate the wheat from the chaff when you're listening to him? Do you just sort of sit back and say, wow, this is fun? Or do you try or make a solid effort to say, you know what, maybe there are a couple of things out of this that really have some basis. In fact, i got to find out what they are. Yeah, that's that's essentially it. I mean, looking for the, the diamonds in the rough, uh, so to speak. You know, John's scenario is pretty dark and grim and big, and I don't buy it. I mean, I don't buy the, the all-powerful uh, controlling group uh, UFO secret society or secret agency, whatever it is. I, I'm not sure that there is such an agency. I know there's a lot of discussion in the UFO fields about the possibility, but uh, I haven't seen the proof. So the overall giant conspiracy to treat ease between us and aliens, I don't buy any of that stuff. So I guess that makes it pretty clear how you feel about the whole disclosure movement then as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any disclosure coming. I'd like to see it. I think probably there is a storehouse of information somewhere. Um, I suspect maybe it's been taken out of government hands as a further uh, to create a further buffer between uh, people like you and I and uh, the public and, and those who keep the secrets. There, there's obviously a lot of data somewhere. You know, we've had so many countless reports of pilots and uh, gun camera images and things of that sort that are picked up and taken away somewhere. We know that that Bolander memo was very real. It said uh, any cases involving national security, uh, that information goes somewhere else where we don't know. So I think there probably is a big pile of information. I'm not sure it's something that's ever shared with the president. I don't expect President Obama, even if there is a pile of information that he has access to, to come out anytime soon. Right. He's got a heck of a lot of stuff on his plate, and I don't think he needs UFOs mucking it up. Certainly not. Uh, at this, the daily revelations about the economic problems. Right before the show, I was telling Gene about this AIG memo that's been leaked. I don't know if you know about this, George. It's uh, No, I don't. It's uh, well, well. You may I, not want to know after. Yeah, you may this. not want. It, it's it is truly. Uh, it, it's terrifying, terrifying in a way that very few things in the paranormal realm certainly are, and it, it sort of underscores the huge problems we're facing, not just uh, nationally but certainly internationally on a global scale. The financial system is in a terrible state. So I mean, uh, yeah. Can can you imagine Obama coming out to talk about UFOs in the middle of that? No, not hoping to have any credibility, certainly. And I think we're on the same page with the issue of disclosure. Um, we had a recent episode with Steve Bassett, and it, it was a, a bit ugly. Because, let, let's be clear, I think, like you just pointed out, there's clearly some amount of information being contained somewhere, but the idea that there is a concerted effort within the government to release this, even the, the definition of what the government is at, the, at that point, um, you know, small covert groups having some amount of information, which... Clearly, like you said, there is some amount of data. What about the, the allegations that at Area 51 there are projects going on where some of that data is being deployed in some sort of a practical fashion? Have you really seen or, or gotten any information that would indicate that? Well, wisps of it, bits and pieces. Uh, in addition to Lazar, and I know there are lots of questions about Lazar, and, and most of them I raised myself uh, in the beginning. In addition to Lazar, I've got more than two dozen people who've worked at the base over at different periods, people who mm -hmm. don't, don't necessarily know each other, who worked there at different times, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, who've all given me little bits and pieces of the story, glimpses of saucer-like craft, 
there are some photos of saucer-like craft, a famous shot that Gary Schultz took of what looks like a flying sombrero out there. Uh, I think they probably did have something that looked very much like a flying saucer, whether it was alien in origin or not, I don't know. There are always little hints about this kind of stuff, and the oppressive secrecy uh, doesn't help it any. I mean, it makes it look really suspicious. I know there are a lot of folks who believe that it was uh, a story created by the government to deflect attention away from, from what really goes on out there, legitimate national security programs and projects. And if that is the case, in Lazar, for example, uh, you know, a lot of people believe he was a dupe. He was used to put this story out to deflect attention away from something else out there. And if that is the case, it is a miserable failure. Somebody should have their ass spanked for that uh, because <laughs> as a result of the UFO stories coming out, and, you know, and I certainly, certainly played my part in that, tens of thousands of people have made the trek out there to see whatever it is that's flying around in the sky, to spy on that base, to peek down on it through telescopes and binoculars from different vantage points. Every major news organization in the world has beaten a path to that door. CBS and ABC and NBC, 60 Minutes, uh, Nightline, Larry King, Geraldo, uh, the BBC, you name it. Uh, they've been out there looking around and asking questions, and that's not the kind of thing that any secret base or classified military installation want. So if, in fact, it was a created story, that the rumor was started by them, I think that was a big, big mistake on their part. I think that there, it's possible that something like that was out there. I've had enough people whose credibility uh, I consider to be fairly high who have told me this story in varying degrees. There's one guy in particular... He's not a Lazar. Whatever you think of Lazar, this guy's credentials are not questioned. I mean, I essentially stalked him. I knew where he worked in, in past years. I knew that he would have been in a position to know. And I just started sort of showing up at events where he would he would be and introduced myself. And we talked about the good old days of atomic testing. And eventually he invited me over to his home to share with me some of his scrapbooks and, and memorabilia and things of that sort. When I got there, he sort of closes the book and he says, you're not here to talk about this, are you? I said, no, not really. He says, I know what you're here to talk about. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels, you pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We're talking to George Knapp, 
and he's an award-winning journalist, UFO investigator. He has investigated the mysteries of Area 51, the Skinwalker Ranch, and we'll get to some of the latest developments on that if there are any later on. But right now, please tell us, what did you learn from this information that this guy gave you? Well, he started opening up that he had been uh, been at Area 51 in the earliest days of when the, the base was opened, uh, talked about a variety of different secret projects, and then started talking about UFOs. Uh, and it was like pulling teeth to get him to talk about it. it, it over the course of the next six or so months, we'd have lunch and breakfast, and he wouldn't allow me to take notes, no recording devices, and so I would ask him these questions, and I'd write furiously on a notepad after I left to recreate the conversations. And over the course of those months, he told me that there had had craft out there, that they had been taking them apart to figure out how they worked, that were they were completely stumped. And I would ask him things like, well, look, are you, are you worried that uh, you'd have an accident, that the story would get out? He said uh, at one point to me, we're more worried about it getting out, meaning it, I mean, a live creature, that's what I'm asking him. He said, yeah. And we go into a conversation over a course of a couple of meetings about uh, an alien. And I know it sounds outrageous, and it's hard to believe, but, again, the guy was in a, a very high position. His family was in politics here in, in Nevada, and um, so a well-known family here and a very credible guy. And he's telling me this story. He says, uh, yeah, we had an alien. I said, no, and you were keeping it captive? It came all this way? You kept it captive? He goes, yeah, well, in the beginning, we couldn't communicate with it. Uh, we didn't know how to communicate, and then eventually we worked out a system where we, we could communicate. And, of course, this story that this guy is telling me sort of dovetails into a lot of what Lear had said and, and others had believed, as incredible as it may sound. And he told me a story. He said, uh, you know what this alien looked like? He kind of looked like a political figure. And at the time, uh, Ross Perot was running for president. He told me this thing looked like Ross Perot, a little skinny <laughs> guy with great big ears. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. Oh, Ladies man. and gentlemen, Ross Perot is an alien. I yeah. might believe that, actually. <laughs> so the guy told me this story. I said, look, I, I got to be able to do something with this. I got This story needs to be told. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll put something on videotape that could be released after I die. Now, that was 15, 16 years ago. The guy is pretty, pretty old. He's in the upper 80s, but he's still alive. Uh, I talked to him once, uh, maybe eight, nine years ago was the last time I talked to him, and he indicated to me that he had, in fact, made that tape. And it's in possession of one of his kids, and I would get it afterward. And it would be it would be one heck of a story based on just his personal credibility if to have somebody of his stature say that the story is true. Anyway, there were a lot of other people uh, who came forward with bits and pieces of information. There was a, an engineer, for example, who worked at uh, KLAS here and had moved on to a TV station in the Pacific Northwest uh, who had worked at Area 51 before he worked for us, and he had told us a story when he worked here about seeing a saucer under a tarp out there. And this is was, this was kind of a, a weird series of events that happened to me while I was investigating this thing. It, it sure seemed like somebody was listening to the phones. And I know you, you get that paranoid uh, element in the UFO field. You're always figuring somebody's listening in, Big Brother, the government, or whatever. But this happened to me six different times where somebody agrees on the phone to give me information, and then they're visited. This guy, this engineer who worked with us, who I had known prior to working on Area 51 stuff, agreed to give me an interview. I was going to black out his face, and he was going to tell me a little, little story about seeing this saucer under a tarp in a, in a hangar out there. And the next morning, he wakes up, and there's these two guys in a car, and one of them speaking on a radio, and they're wearing sunglasses and making it very obvious uh, to him that they look like government types. They follow him to work. When he got off work, they followed him home. 
again speaking in the interview, and he got intimidated by it and uh, and wouldn't uh, talk to me. There was a lady who works here, and she still works in the Clark County court system here in, in Las Vegas, and I, I, she came to my attention through a guy who was a bailiff who now works as an investigator for the district attorney. He had struck up a conversation with her about UFOs and found out that she had been a stenographer for Holmes & Narver, which is a major defense contractor, said she had sat in on meetings between the Air Force and contractors in which they talked about recovered disks and recovered alien stuff being taken uh, from crash sites and Wright-Patterson and stored at Area 51. And uh, this bailiff guy I knew asked her if she'd be willing to tell me the story, and she said, yeah. So I talked to the bailiff about this on the, on the air. The very next day after we arranged to meet this lady, she gets visited by two guys who flash badges who said, you know, you're still under a security clearance. You still have a, a security oath that's in effect. We know that you and your daughter travel back and forth between Las Vegas and Los Angeles. There's a lot of desert out there, lady, and we'd hate to see something happen to either one of you. And she was petrified. Now, this is... This is 20 years ago, and she's still petrified and, and still won't talk to me about it. There was a guy named Roy Byram who did taxes, prepared uh, taxes for a lot of military people, got to know him pretty well, uh, high-ranking office officers at uh, Nellis Air Force Base, and he started hearing these flying saucer stories from his clients and would ask him about it, and we'd get bits and pieces about it and offered to give me an on-camera interview. Uh, when I was working on a second series in 1990. And, and again, the next day, he's visited by two guys uh, who said they were from the Secret Service, and they, they heard he was been making threatening statements about the president and how would he like to go to prison, which he wrote to me and allowed me to use this statement. Basically, his interpretation was, shut your mouth. Anyway, there was a series of six of those right in a row. It really struck me that somebody really was listening in. And, and in years later, I've had two of these guys who were following us around, but us meaning me and uh, Lazar and Gene Huff, maybe looking to see who we were getting information from or who we were meeting with. But that stuff, you know, uh, there are a lot of critics of the Area 51 story, and I understand that. Uh, but I lived through some of this stuff, and there was some weird stuff that went on uh, during those years, during that whole Lazar episode. Uh, people following us around and break-ins of the houses, and it was spooky. It was a spooky time. So it came to an end at some point in time that this... Yeah, it sort of fizzled. Uh, yeah, kind yeah. of fizzled. Um, you know, we did a second series with Lazar, and of course, it, it became a pretty big story all over the world. And people were were uh, uh, flocking to his door, trying to get him to do interviews. And he came to me. We met for a beer one day, and he says, "Hey, I got to tell you something. I'm involved in a, a little illegal whorehouse." I go, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, I, I got a I got a girl. I've been seeing this this hooker." And she had a little operation she's running in a um, in an apartment building, and it happens to be on the same street where I lived at the time. I thought, oh, geez, there, there's my whole professional life is kind of flashing before mm -hmm. my eyes. I mean, here's the highest profile witness and the highest profile story I'd probably had ever done, and he's telling me that he's involved in an illegal brothel. And he said, yeah, I, I expanded it. I uh, I helped her expand. We recruited some girls. We rented the apartment next door, poked a hole in the wall, and now she's got an office and a, and a working area. I thought, oh, Jesus. So he, I said, I don't believe it. So he, Lazar takes me over there and shows me this. And I told him, look, man, you, you've got to stop this. You've got to, you got to come clean. You've got to uh, shut this down. Uh, because everybody was looking at him. He had all kinds of scrutiny. This is going to blow up in his face. His, you know, his credibility also uh, had been questioned on several, lo several levels already, quite legitimately. 
So I called the cops and I told them, uh, with Bob's permission, I said, look, this thing's been going on. A couple of your undercover guys know about it. I think one of those cops had been having an affair with the hooker who ran the operation. And uh, I'm just calling to let you know that we're shutting this thing down. It's going to go away. Well, they reacted by immediately sending out a team of vice cops to bust the operation, arrested Lazar. It was a big stink, a major black mark on his reputation and probably on mine to some extent, an embarrassment. The interesting that they, I mean, they wanted to give him hard time, which was a pretty a rarity for an accused pimp in Las Vegas, certainly back then. They wanted to give him hard time. And the reason is that parole and probation, who prepared the sentencing report, uh, could not verify his background. They went through some of the same sort of challenges that I had gone through. And, in fact, Bob had told him the same story he told me. And if you're thinking, you know, he's a con man or he made this stuff up, that would have been the time to come clean about where he went to school, about who he worked for, Area 51, all that stuff. Come clean because he was looking at hard time a couple of years. But he didn't. He stuck to the story. And he got probation eventually, and uh, as a result of that, you know, sort of the interest kind of waned a little bit. Uh, every once in a while, I will do an update on where is he now kind of a thing. And this being the 20th anniversary, we might put something together um, uh, uh, later this year, sort of a retrospective. But uh, in general, until I did this uh, UFO hunters thing a couple of months ago, um, I haven't talked about Area 51 for quite a while. It, does that mean there's been less activity out there? I mean, one of the things that, uh, and, and, and actually before we even get to that, uh, George, getting back to the fellow who uh, you had the meeting with who said that he had actually seen an alien being. Am I understanding that correctly? Right. Yep. Okay. He indicated that they had a hard time communicating with it early on. Presumably they were at some point able to open some line of communication with this thing. Did he give you any other details about that? That's the impression that I got, but I never got any information from him about where these things were from or why they were here or any of the really big questions. I had hoped to continue that conversation, and he abruptly cut it off. Uh, he said that my continuing uh, presence there was causing him some problems, that somebody had seen us together and he had to keep his mouth shut. But that was the, the last meeting that I had. Like I said, he had indicated that the tape had been made and I could have it after he passes on. Right. But, you know, at this point, I guess I'd believe it when I see it. Yeah. I, I was watching a, a little segment of a MUFON presentation I think you did last year up on YouTube. God bless YouTube. There was uh, something that you said that I think really rings of interest to our, our listeners and certainly to uh, Gene and myself as we as we try to have more thoughtful discussions about all this in that um, you had indicated that at one point you had a conversation with Jacques Vallée, who we've had on the show, and uh, that he had made a statement to the, to the extent that uh, he would be disappointed if the uh, big sort of revelation about all of this were, is that these were simply uh, visitors from another planetary system of some sort. Right. Um, and, and something that you brought up, which I think... We need to open up more of a discussion about, certainly in any kind of mainstream way about this, is that this assumption that uh, the sourcing of some majority of these craft is uh, as simple as it being an extraterrestrial set of visitations is perhaps a, a flawed one. And I'm wondering if we, can, if we can talk about that a little bit. And I know that kind of dovetails on uh, some of the research you had done out, in, out at Skinwalker Ranch, where you found tenuous connections between these things and overlap. Yeah, well, uh, you know, Valet had first proposed this uh, several years ago, and it uh, it fell with a thud in the UFO community because, you know, you, you've got folks who are nuts and bolts saucer guys who had to believe that this is a mechanical craft created by people from another planet, that they're visiting from other planets, uh, and that's something you can wrap their head around. 
something more exotic like other dimensions, parallel universes, that, that's a little tougher to swallow. But Valet looked at the, all the data from across the world and realized these are not just visitors coming, popping up here for expeditions every once in a while. There are simply too many sightings to explain mm -hmm. that. He says, look, you look at the craft, you look at the reports of the craft, the credible, legitimate cases that have been investigated by the military, and if those cases are being reported accurately, then these craft are able to bend space and time in a way that we don't understand. And if they could do that, if they, in fact, can manipulate space and time, essentially they could be from anywhere. They could be from everywhere. They could be extraterrestrials and interdimensionals and time travelers all at once. So he thought that the ultimate truth would be far more exotic than something as simple as aliens visiting from another planet. And, and that's sort of the view that I've, I've drifted toward uh, over the last several years, uh, especially in relation to Skinwalker Ranch, because uh, the stuff that happened out there doesn't sound like anything, any standard alien story that we've ever heard. Mm -hmm. In talking about all of this, do you get a sense that the government secrecy, and let's just define that as some, some group of people within the power structure of what we call the government having access to some amount of data and we don't even know if there are conclusions behind that data but let's presume that there is some some body of evidence as it were do you get a sense that perhaps one of the reasons that there is this tremendous level of secrecy is a potential reality that these guys don't really understand what it is they're holding and they can't reveal that for what would be I guess very explicitly defined as national security reasons, the opposite of security being insecurity. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We're talking to George Knapp, who is a UFO investigator, award-winning broadcast journalist on TV. And now, what do they know, and when did they know it? <laughs> Boy, don't you wish you knew. I'm sort of leaning in the direction where you're heading with the question is that uh, they have a lot of information, but my suspicion is they don't know what the hell to do with it. They might even have pieces of craft, as the stories go in Area 51. But as the stories are, are told by Lazar and others, they've been taking these things apart for a long period of time to try to figure out how they work and haven't been making much progress. And I, I think that's entirely possible. I suspect that, uh, you know, there's a great big storehouse of info or data, cases, incidents, 
uh, film, video, things of that sort, and they really don't know how to deal with it. And I base that conclusion on a couple of things. One of the most telling is people who have been on the inside of the government, people whose opinions I really value that I've got to know over the years. Some of those people went to work for NID out here with Bob Bigelow, ex-intelligence guys, CIA, people who had seen glimpses of this program or glimpses of a, a interest while they were in their official positions working within the defense and intelligence communities. And their, their curiosity had been piqued, and they would chase it down as much as they could within their official capacities and weren't able to get any answers, And uh, which is why they could sort of continue the inquiry outside once they were in the, the private sector. You know, guys like that who have been on the inside as close to the secrets as, as you would think you could get uh, don't know. And, and their suspicion, uh, I don't know if you had ever talked to John Alexander, their suspicion, as his is, is that there is a big pile of information, but nobody really knows what to do with it, and that there is not, at least not now, any kind of concerted, singular, uh, omnipresent overlord of the UFO info within government, that people there don't know what to do with it either. And you get that sense from these national security cases, such as the, the 1975 overflights of U.S. nuclear missile bases along the Canadian border, where the military just seems befuddled. They don't want to admit that we don't know what it is that's flying around. We have no control over it. It can neutralize our most sophisticated and most powerful weapon systems, and, and there's nothing we can do about it. And uh, I don't think they want to admit that, obviously. I don't think that they have any answers about what to do with it. Uh, and it, yeah. it's uh, scary in some regard and sympathetic almost. You know, There they are, supposed to be the all-powerful, all-protective uh, big brother, and, and uh, I don't think they, they have any clue. You know, all those rumors we hear from people who believe in disclosure, quote-unquote, they try to give us a hint of what they think the government knows. Is this wishful thinking? Is it disinformation? Where do they get these crazy thoughts? Well, you know, I, I think those disclosure guys, their their hearts are in the right place, some of them anyway, but uh, others have uh, weaved together this rich tapestry of information into their own uh, conspiracy theory. You know, some of those witnesses that were rolled out, for example, by Stephen Greer, they're pretty legitimate people who all had their own little bits and pieces of the story. Here's what I know, here's what I saw, and it's the Greers of the world who tie it together into something much bigger and grander. Yes, the secrets of all of our energy uh, problems are can be uh, solved if, if we roll out this ET technology. It's the Greers of the world that, that tell that story. They take what seems to be legitimate, verifiable, credible information and then create something of it for their own purposes. And I don't know where else to go with it. Well, what about the other paranoid opinion, which is some of this stuff is being fed to them by the government to maybe dissuade us? from studying it further or just to mislead us as to what they really know? Well, I think that's a real scenario, and I think it has happened. I mean, we goes back to the 1953 Robertson Report where they uh, studied it and said, you know, UFOs don't appear to be a threat to national security, but the continued reporting of UFOs could be a threat. It could be manipulated in some way. So we need to strip UFOs of their aura of mystery, and they even used terms like debunking. And I, I think they... Uh, they launched some sort of grandiose plans for how to how to make fun of UFOs. And whether or not those plans were ever carried out, it sure looks like it, because uh, the laughter curtain is very real, even even at this point. I mean, it's opened up a little bit. The kind of work that you guys do have you know, added a, an element of credibility to the discussion uh, of these topics, and, and that's good. But, you know, for, for far too many people, there really is a, 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 
a downside to talking about it. There really is a ridicule factor that's still in effect. And, and in that vein, I think it could have been very easy for government types to manipulate the public opinion. We know that there are some guys who did those things that have, over the years, planted disinformation. A lot of folks think that that's the explanation for the MJ-12 documents, that they were written by insiders with bits and pieces of real information, but ultimately may be created to confuse our enemies about what we know on this topic. I think that disinformation is very real. I also think that disinformation would not be necessary anymore because there's so many crazy UFO people who tell ridiculous stories and bring shame to the topic and uh, ridicule to the topic, that there's no need for the government to belittle the subject. Uh, ufology is quite capable of doing that all on its own. Well, you know, your friend John Lear has claimed that David Bietney is a government agent of some sort. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm now participating in the conspiracy right here? Apparently. Oh, um, yes. Oh, yes. We're doing it right yeah. here. We're sitting here well, in an underground but, bunker. And not to turn this into the discussion of personality, sadly... When you talk about things that happen on Earth, uh, humans invariably are part of that story and part of that narrative. But uh, it's odd to, to see some of the and hear some of the things that Lear has claimed and, and to think that people you know, will even take it seriously at any level. I, I think what you just said is very telling, George, that the, the curtain of uh, laughter around this is one that is kind of uh, surrounded us almost by the virtue of gravity. No one really has to inv evoke it. It's there. And part of that is, of course, how the media deals with this topic. So here you are doing serious reporting. And, and I actually want to get to the Needles episode that you reported on last year, because I think that I'm curious about what the follow-up there has been. But you've been actually able to, to carve a, a territory out in the, in the media landscape where you're doing some serious reporting around this. I mean, do you get pressure from the TV station to add an element of entertainment to this? No, quite the opposite. They recognize that uh, this is this is perilous uh, territory. That it's thin ice. That you know our credibility, my credibility, and that of the station are on the line when I do this stuff. So I try to approach it uh, just like I would any other story and report things that we can verify or at least reasonably re deserve to be reported. So the, the station does not ask me to uh, to fluff it up or or make it more sensational. Quite the opposite. They're they're very happy when I do these stories to tone it down a little bit and be careful. That's an example with the needle stuff. Now, we called it, and we can get into that in, in a minute, we called it a UFO in the strictest definition of the word, unidentified, because we don't know what it was. Absolutely. Uh, do not make claims like it's an alien saucer or anything like that. And we're always careful, even with the Lazar stuff, look, uh, here's the story that he lays out. Here's where the problems are with it. You know, there are gaps in his story. There are things that don't add up that, that I don't believe to be true. But ultimately, with him, I believe that he was telling the, the truth as he knows it, but whether or not we can ever document it or prove it to in a in a subjective, uh, an objective way, uh, probably not. So, yeah, I try to navigate this uh, cautiously, recognizing that there's a lot of people who would like to see it ridiculed and and would like to see us go down in flames. Uh, the hardcore debunkers, whether or not they work with some uh, all-purpose uh, evil empire that, that the, the UFO overlords, I, I, I tend to doubt it. But there are a lot of people that see, like to see this ridicule. There was a story in our paper by the Associated Press, it might have run all over the country, about the UFO Congress in Laughlin. 
that ended a week or so ago. It tried, to, I think there were efforts, it tried to be down the middle, but just couldn't help itself. The same kind of little pot shots that smarmy reporters have used against U UFOs over the years pop up in story after story, and they did in this one, you know, like, you know, you you guys know the, the lineup at the UFO Congress. It's sort of like a come one, come all, and, you know, you got to take it, again, with a grain of salt. You don't have to believe everything. they got some interesting speakers and then some speakers that I would not consider to be real credible. It, it's sort of like it comes with the territory, but you know, for a reporter to cover it, you see this conspiracy thing, you know, mix in exopolitics, and then you got some people speaking in, in Klingon and uh, wearing the funny UFO beanie. It is so easy to make fun of that and to do it even uh, without being too obvious, you know, and it happens again and again. And I don't know if these reporters who just occasionally cover UFOs and make fun of the topic, they think they're the first guys or gals to have done this, to come up with the, the jokes and the elbow and the ribs wink and nod kind of a thing and, and poke fun at it. They all seem to use the same lines, the same jokes, the same approach to belittle the topic, and it does my uh, profession no good. I mean, because it's, it's the easy way. It's the easy way to make fun of it and, and, and crank out some, some jokes. The hard way is going out there, spending night after night at Area 51 with binoculars, dodging the security guards and coyotes and dirt clods and things like that to try to get to the story. It's The hard part is tracking down witnesses and trying to verify their background and getting documentation. That's hard work. These folks don't do that. It's a lot easier to make fun of it. And I, I get sick of it. I've caught so much grief on the UFO stuff over the years, most of it from my journalism colleagues. It just drives them crazy that I take this stuff seriously, that I try to approach it like any other story. I mean, I've broken a lot of good stories here uh, over the years. I've been here a long time. Were it not for the UFO thing, I probably would be perilously close to being respectable. Uh, but, uh, Do you think it uh, keeps you from being on a network? I think it probably has, has put a ceiling over where my career could go. That's okay. That's all right. I like living here. I like working where I work. And, and my station has given me the kind of support that I, I don't think many stations would, allowing me to, to, to follow the stories where they lead. They don't ask me to do UFO stuff. Uh, when I come up with something that I think is interesting and, and deserves to be on TV, I pitch it to them, and, and they give me a thumbs up or thumbs down, mostly thumbs up, but never have asked me to, to fluff it up or, or add an entertainment factor at all. Well, you know, part of the problem, we mentioned the, the Laughlin event, the UFO Congress, and I didn't see that, that news item. But, of course, I think you've also pointed out, George, that the, the field is its own worst enemy. You know, you look at the lineup, and, and this is, I think, what a lot of people who have a genuine interest in this start to look at and say, you know, something sort of smells here. And this goes back to the thing that Greer did back in 2001, putting a bunch of, in some cases, very credible witnesses up with people who were uh, very problematic. And this is something that we see over and over again. You look at the lineup for the Congress, and again, I, I, we don't want to make this uh, about the personalities, but it's easy to see how uh, people in the media would uh, go and sit in on a session from one of the more questionable people at this Congress. I'm not going to mention names. People can look at the lineup, and you know, based on the things we've talked about in the Paracast, they get a very clear idea of who I've got in mind. There are names on here who are you know, not respectable people in any realm. And they get thrown on the same stage, given the same weight and credibility as people who, you know, do have good things to say and, and who are credible. Is there any way that we're ever going to get around this? Or, again, is it that you see this at a place like the UFO Congress because they want to fill seats and so they look to get a wide cross-section 
of all sorts of different speakers, people talking about serious UFO stuff, and then people talking about establishing love circles with the with the Space Brothers. Is <laughs> that mean just... that's not serious? Well, no, but it, I was it's... sitting here, David, please, I was sitting here thinking I could establish oh. a love circle with my wife. We'd, you know, <laughs> call in the eight, forget it. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Listen, we have George Knapp joining us on the Paracast this week, and we are not kidding around. We understand why there are concerns about events like this, where they have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it's a smorgasbord of UFO events, and it takes away the credibility, doesn't it? Well, I think it does to some extent, because it makes it so easy for people like that AP reporter to go there, sit in on a little bit, spend a half of a day, and then write a smarmy, smirky little story like the one that was printed in the paper here. And it happens over and over again. You you do have organizations like MUFON that are much more selective in who they have uh, to speak at their symposiums. I, I've spoken at that, uh, their international symposium a couple of times, and that's a pretty good lineup. doesn't mean you have to buy everything that everybody says, but sure. they do weed out the real crazies and, and have a sort of a scientific bent, and, and uh, I think they do a pretty good job. Yeah, I think uh, the UFO Congress does uh, have the broadest possible appeal so they can put butts in the seats and, and make a little money. I guess and uh, they would say, look, we're offering a forum for all kinds of different things. You can pick and choose what you want, but it does not help the overall credibility of the subject to have ufology mixed in with uh, all this other crazy stuff. You know, as you said, ufology is quite capable of screwing itself up, its own reputation, without any help from anybody else. So, given that we know that, George, how do we then try to change the tone of the conversation? Is it something we should try to do? Is it even in the realm of possibility that that's something that could be accomplished in our lifetimes? I don't think so, because it's the consumer, you know, the, the public, what they want. Now the Internet, the crazier the story, the more interest there is. I'm thinking of people like Dan Burrish and uh, Dr. Dan Crane here in, in Las Vegas and the ridiculous story that he tells, and it gets wilder and wilder every year. And he's got a cadre of people who are willing to buy those tapes, so he keeps cranking it out, and he always has to step it up a notch with some new uh, lie and new creation or mythology in order to keep the interest among his potential customers. I don't know how we weed that out. You know, it, it is a free society. People can say whatever they want. You're welcome to pay attention to whatever you want, and I, I don't know how to stop it. Um, you know, the, this topic has always attracted crazies and uh, sure. fringe elements, and, and I suspect it always will. I don't have an answer. I, I don't think it'll end in our lifetime, not at all. Nope. In the old days, of course, we try to separate these events. We'd have a serious UFO event, and then we let the contactees or the crazies or whatever you wanted to call them go to Giant Rock, 
and make the Integratron. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't know what this machine is, and I'm not going to explain it to you, but you get the sense of it. <laughs> I went out there a couple of years ago to the Integratron, which is now being used. It's being rented out for some kind of like sonic experiences where people uh, make weird mystical sounds on bones or rocks or something. Anyway, it's a really interesting building, but I'm not sure it was built from any space alien plans. Well, that's what the intention was, one of the contactees, Daniel Fry. Back in the 50s, he started collecting money, donations, to build this machine that was supposed to give you perpetual life, as I recall. Or if it wasn't perpetual life, make you feel better. (laughs) I think the claims tended to disintegrate or at least were lessened over time. It's now of interest, I think, as a minor historical footnote, but as I said, it's being operated as some sort of a new age hippie kind of uh, healing center. It's an interesting place. If you ever get a chance to go out there just from an historical, ufological historical standpoint. Meanwhile, in contemporary times, there are interesting UFO cases going on. So I briefly brought up the needles episode. George, for our listeners that aren't familiar with this, could you give us some background on what happened? Sure. May 14th of last year, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning, something comes blazing out of the sky, heading from the northeast toward the southwest. One witness who saw it is a guy named Frank Costigan, who was the chief of police at LAX for a couple of years and uh, also chief of operations there, so he's familiar with all kinds of aircraft. He gets up to let out his cat, and this thing flies overhead. He said it was uh, a long, oblong kind of an object, uh, like a fuel tanker car on fire, uh, turquoise flames coming out out of it. Uh, he thought it was maybe at first thought it was an aircraft that was going to crash and it went it dropped out of sight behind a mountain uh, right by his house and he thought he would hear something about it later and he, and uh, well, subsequently he did. Uh, down on the Colorado River there's a guy named, uh, I'll call him Houseboat Bob. He's fishing. He's floating down the river at 3 o'clock in the morning and he sees this thing fly over and it crash lands uh, on the banks of the Colorado. He thought it was a plane as well. He runs upstairs uh, on his houseboat to try to get a satellite phone to call out and call somebody and report a plane crash. And within a couple of minutes, these helicopters arrive. Four smaller military helicopters and then a great big sky crane. And the sky crane dipped down below the, the where he could see it, picks this object up, still kind of glowing, and hauls it away toward the north. The other little helicopters followed. Subsequently, uh, the next morning, uh, the, there's this KTOX radio in the town of Needles. The guy who owns the station, uh, which is where Frank Costigan, the ex-cop uh, from LAX, is employed, uh, this guy is driving to work, and he sees this convoy of really strange vehicles, um, uh, blacked-out windows, government plates, lots of antennas, guys in military haircuts, uh, crew cuts, and sunglasses driving these things. They really give him the, a hard look, followed him back to the station. Uh, he sees a whole phalanx of these things driving through town, and uh, and he thought it was interesting. And when his friend Frank comes into the station, he mentions it to him, and then they subsequently got a call on their talk show from this guy, Houseboat Bob, who described what was going on. Over the next couple of days, these men in black type people start showing up, asking questions about the incident. Bob, sorry, gets a little scared and, and uh, goes underground, at least for a time period. And uh, I think Linda Howe got wind of this from Coast to Coast Radio, from Ian over Coast to Coast, and, and she started poking around, got an interview with Bob, posted it on her website, and then the story sort of uh, ended there. I picked up on it the last year in July. We went down and uh, found Houseboat Bob. We found Costigan. We found some other witnesses, put the story together. Uh, we uh, sent out a lot of inquiries to uh, different military bases and the FAA and things of that sort to try to figure out if we could document it. 
We do have some information that it does appear that the military helicopters were in the air in that area. Uh, we at least have eyewitness uh, statements that uh, these Janet planes, the planes that ferry workers to and from Area 51, had landed at Laughlin uh, that next morning. And it looks like maybe, uh, my guess, it is a UFO in the strictest sense, unidentified, but it seems like it was uh, some sort of a military project that got out of hand or off a range or, or something like that because, bam, they were on it in a big hurry. The story about these strange men in black gets a little more complicated, but we can talk about that if you want to get into it. Well, just a, a couple of details uh, about the actual object itself. When this thing was coming down, was it, it doing sort of a typical... Uh, sort of a, a meteorite kind of a motion, did it change direction or speed at any point? It did. It slowed down. Uh, both uh, Bob and Costigan had said it seemed to slow down and then speed up while it was in mid-flight. But it didn't do any maneuvering, not like a saucer or anything like that. It was a, a meteor-type trajectory, except for the fact that it slowed down. Was there any kind of an explosion or, or, or sound event when this thing impacted? I think he said it was like a thump, which uh, which that makes sense because that area of the Colorado River, it's like a beach. It's real sandy. It's overgrown with salt cedar and other kinds of uh, invasive plants. But uh, he, he described it to us as a thump, and uh, that area where we, we went and looked to see if we could see an impact point a couple of times and, and could never find it. But the whole area there is a real sandy bottom, and it, would, it makes sense that it would make a thump. Okay, so this would seem not necessarily to be from out there, but it could very well be a secret aircraft or just any kind of military aircraft, which is why they ran out to find out what was going on. Yeah, that would be my guess. It's interesting on a variety of levels. Uh, one, if you believe that there really are UFOs and that maybe some have been recovered for after crashing, this is the kind of operation that might be able to do something like that. And if we accept the eyewitness statements, and, and I have no reason not to believe them, uh, it would seem like they're pretty good at it. I suspect that it was a military program of some sort, maybe a, an advanced a big UAV of some sort or some kind of a test platform. They've got a lot of exotic stuff in the works, and this uh, uh, presumably got off the range or something went awry, and, and they were tracking it. The fact that they were able to get there so quickly suggests that they were part of the operation from the beginning, but again, that's just my guess. Yeah. This uh, Bob character, when he saw this thing, uh, he saw this uh, helicopter carrying it in the air? Yes, he saw it. He said it went down below where he could see, because on the river it's, it's a little bit lower than the, than the bank. It went down below, it was there for just a, a minute or so, and then uh, he doesn't know how they attached it, but then it, the sky crane picked up and it was carrying this object back toward the north. And we actually have found other witnesses in the town of Laughlin, which is north of Needles, who saw this thing coming back. They didn't see it the other way, but they saw this thing being uh, carried, this little flotilla of uh, helicopters passing by the outskirts of their town. Was this thing, it might understand that this uh, thing was actually uh, self-illuminated, it was emanating light? Yeah, you know, I, I've heard a couple of different stories. Bob at first said he thought it was still glowing when they picked it up. In my interview, I know on the UFO Hunters, I think he said something a little different, but he, he had told me in my interview he thought the thing was illuminated because the spotlights from the other helicopters were lighting it up, not necessarily oh. that it was generating its own light. But right. the other people, the witnesses in Laughlin had told me they they saw a faint sort of greenish glow from this thing as it passed uh, through their town. So, you know, it's uh, slightly different accounts from the different witnesses. So slightly greenish, not reddish or whitish? No. Nope. The descriptions have all been pretty consistent in that. And uh, it was a turquoise-type flames coming from behind it, according to Costigan and Bob. 
and then the uh, greenish or blue-green uh, sort of a glow by the other witnesses as it was being carried away. So what kind of flammable material creates a greenish flame? or turquoise flame. You know, somebody sent me a list of metals that produce. There's a couple of metals. I don't have the list in front of me of the metals that, that do produce that, but there's an answer to that. I, I have to dig that up and get it for you, but there is an answer. Yeah, it's curious because you know, if you think about a typical uh, remote control craft or UAP, it doesn't sound like it's got the shape or morphology of something. Presumably, he didn't see any kind of wing structures on this of any sort. No, it didn't. Nope. It didn't. Like I said, the, the guy said it looked sort of like a tanker. You know, long, uh, no wings, no tail, or anything like that. What the heck that would be, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Yeah, no I, sound when it was coming over either, right? It was silent as it was coming uh, over? Yeah, I don't remember. I don't think he said there was any sound. He didn't hear any yeah. sound. Well, that's always uh, one of the things that uh, I, I, I listen very carefully for because there's that thing about my own UFO sightings that, that I personally had. There is this element of zero sound, absolutely no sound, which is sort of very, very odd to actually experience something that's you know mechanical in the sky that's not making sound. It's not something that your brain tells you makes any sense because it doesn't, especially if it's something moving fast. Not like a, even like a balloon you know, or like a Zeppelin, you know, or a blimp will have motors associated with it that are pushing it along, and, and they'll make sound, considerable sound, especially with things at low altitude. So uh, that's always something that you end up listening for. And, and this idea that it slowed down is, of course, interesting, but it didn't change direction. Is that correct? Right. It could be okay. a perception thing. It seems to slow down, you know, but both of them had said it. So the stuff with the men in black is where the story got interesting for me because they, uh, you know, I kept getting these stories about them floating around and asking questions. Uh, there was a lady who was at the radio station while Houseboat Bob called in. She's a Democratic political organizer. And she comes on the station, I guess, every week to do a little spot. And she was there when Bob called. And then two nights later, she has this political meeting. And, and one of these guys shows up. And he's pacing around and smoking and wants to talk to her. Hey, I want to join your club. And can I can I join in? And she says, sure. And then he starts asking questions about Houseboat Bob. He goes, so you were there, huh? Well, what did Houseboat Bob, what did Bob say off the air? How do I get a hold of this guy? And she says, I thought you were here to join the, this political movement, join the party or something. And uh, I guess the guy stormed away or something. And, and those kind of things were going on. They, the people in town started seeing these vehicles. I started getting reports from long-distance uh, truckers and, and delivery guys who travel between Las Vegas and Needles and that area down there, and they had, had seen them. So my photographer, Matt Adams, and I started going down and look for them. As we're working on the, the Needles story, we just uh, take off and, and go see if we can get lucky, and one day we did. Uh, we're driving back from uh, Needles just past the Laughlin turnoff, and Matt, the photographer, goes, man, there goes one. Boom, there goes another one. We flip around and caught up to this convoy of trucks, and they're just pretty much as the witnesses had described them, government plates, blacked-out windows, lots of antenna, uh, no insignia to indicate who they were other than the plate. So we catch up, and I've got the video camera hanging out the window, and uh, I'm videotaping the, everything I can. We get up to the window, and pretty quickly these guys figure out that we're, we're on to them. So I see them lifting up the radios, talking to each other, and pretty soon they pull over. There's a, a way station near Laughlin. Uh, these two vehicles pull over, and as they did, one's just sitting there, on two of them sitting on the side of the road. We pulled over and got out and started shooting more video back in their direction. As we did that, three more of them came by. Zoom, zoom, zoom. So we were kind of sort of in a, a little standoff there, like who's going to draw their gun first. Uh, after a couple of minutes of us shooting back in their direction, the one truck comes up toward us, parks right next to us, gunning its engine, then goes about 10 feet beyond us. And then the other one pulls up a little closer, so now they got us essentially surrounded. 
These two guys get out of the first truck, civilian clothes, military mannerisms and bearing. We see the guy tuck in a piece in his shirt and hide it as he comes out to us. He says, we have to ask you to move off the side of the road. We're federal agents. I said, federal agents, who do you work for? Well, we're federal, federal agents. I need to see your ID right now. I said, well, okay, I'll show you mine. I'd like you to show me yours. And he whips out a badge, too quick for me to see it. And I said, I need to see that again. He whips it out again. And, and sure enough, he is a federal agent. He worked for something called the NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Agency, which has the oversight uh, capabilities over anything to do with uh, nuclear weapons. Actually, these guys, uh, we were later to learn, operate for an even more obscure agency called the Office of Secure Transportation, OST. These are the guys in charge of transporting nuclear weapons and nuclear materials between different military bases and national labs. So we had a little little encounter there, kind of a tense encounter on the side of the road. They're very professional, took down all our information and said, look, we need you to get off the side of the road, stop messing with us, don't interfere with our shipment. I go, shipment? What shipment hmm. of what? So I can't answer any questions. I said, well, look, I, I work with the NNSA all the time. They have a big presence at the test site. Can't we arrange to speak to somebody? He goes, oh, yeah, somebody's going to be talking to you. You can count on that. I'll tell you what, that's that's a good cliffhanger. For part okay. two, we will rejoin George Knapp on the other side of the Paracast. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums, on the back, it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast T-shirt. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. We return with George Knapp, award-winning journalist, and not just somebody who has been credited because of something related to UFOs, but just covering regular stuff, too. Okay? He's been doing this for many, many years. He's been covering UFOs. He has entered what might be the cesspool of the UFO field and has basically found things there that are credible and worth investigating further. So, okay, so you encounter these people. What happens next? Well, we, we tracked them down, as I was describing. We track them down on the side of the road. They pull over. We pull over, and we had a confrontation there, and they told us they had worked for this uh, NNSA, but actually another agency within NNSA, and I had asked them, hey, well, can we talk about this? Because, you know, I work with these guys on in uh, Nevada all the time, and they said, well, somebody will be getting in touch with you, we're sure. And I'm thinking to myself, geez, I'll bet every one of my tax returns is going to be audited for the next 10 years by the time I get in on Monday morning. Sure enough, when I get in Monday morning, there was a call from a friend of mine, and he, uh, he works for the Department of Energy. He said, what the hell were you doing out there? The message goes, you don't know what you, how close you came. Uh, call me when you get in. So I called this guy, and he explained to me who these fellows were working for the OST, the Office of Secure Transportation. This is a very impressive organization. I had never heard of, of them before, but it makes sense that there would be somebody in charge of this kind of thing. They recruit uh, ex-commando uh, um, uh, types, uh, special forces guys, cops, 
uh, cream of the cream, cream of the crop guys. Uh, they go through very rigorous screening, very rigorous training. It's a, an exclusive and um, and much desired position because they have to be the most trusted guys in the government. They're in, in charge of moving nuclear weapons around. So uh, I said, uh, I talked to this friend of mine, so are they going to talk to me? He said, let me see what I can do. So within a week, a couple of guys flew in from out of state, from headquarters of this agency, OST, in Albuquerque, and we had a little off-the-record briefing. They just basically told me, I said, look, we're not a secret agency. Uh, we, we're not one of these agencies that doesn't exist. We just don't like a high, high profile because of what we do. But we do need cooperation from law enforcement around the country. So we, you know, we let them know what we're doing. We don't announce shipments um, uh, for security reasons, but we'd like them to know who we are in case we need some help out there. And they describe what the agency does. I'm thinking, gosh, this is a great story. Have you ever done a news story about it? And they said, no. So can't we work something out? I said, maybe. And so I guess they did some checking on me, and they, they found the UFO stuff, and were a little concerned about that. But then uh, my friend at DOE said, hey, I'm not a UFO crazy. You can trust him. He keeps his word. So they gave us a uh, first-ever glimpse into their training exercises that were going on in a, in a corner of the Nevada test site. Uh, and we got to go up there and, and see what they do and interview some of the people. The head of the agency flew out from Washington to meet us, and we did some stories. And, man, these are impressive guys. But without me asking uh, about whether they transport aliens or crash saucers, they said, look, uh, we don't transport aliens. We only transport nuclear weapons. I guess out on the road, there's a certain mythology that's grown up around these guys among long-haul truckers who see them see them out there in these convoys with these strange vehicles and and you know so it's created sort of a an aura of mystery around them and a lot of speculation and wild stories which is why i think they allowed me to to produce something so i i essentially believe them when they say we don't know anything about needles we don't know who was running around asking those questions but it's not us because we when we get a, a nuclear material we put it in our convoy and we go and we don't stop until we get to where we need to be going because sure. uh, that's their their mission, and and uh, so I, I believe them. I, so I don't know if somebody is operating under the umbrella of these guys, making themselves look like these guys, just to confuse the issue. Uh, because there were a lot of similarities, I just don't think it's them. They told me some fascinating stuff. It's not a paracast kind of a, a, a subject, but man, it's interesting about how these vehicles they've got. They're like transformers. They said if if terrorists, for example, were able to somehow. As unlikely as it seems, uh, overpower or take out the whole team, um, that these vehicles are capable of defending themselves. That if somebody tried to get in these trucks and, and, and grab a nuclear weapon, they would be dead. And I asked him, so what is it? What's the mechanism? Well, we can't tell you that. Yeah, I don't want to give it away. But, no, no, of course not. Yeah. Fascinating stuff, though. Okay. Um, so if these, these guys are certainly men in black types, but they're not the guys that were there. I think, uh, asking the questions about the needles object. All right, let's look at the men in black. What do you think they are? Really government agents or what? I don't know. That's really strange. You know, you, I'm sure you guys have read the, the stuff from way back when, when it seemed like they were aliens as much oh, as yeah. government agents. You know, the, the reports you hear are these strange, the strange languages, the weird cars and the outfits and the get up and, it was, uh, it was it was sort of an alien aspect to it. I suspect a lot of that was hyped up by writers at the time, uh, but some of those uh, eyewitness accounts uh, are from fairly credible people. Uh, I suspect that there are uh, have been from time to time agents who who go around and and uh, collect UFO information. Uh, the guys who, for example, 
collect the gun camera film. You know, it, uh, we've heard those stories from different military pilots over the years that it goes into a locked briefcase and then it disappears somewhere. But I don't know what to make of it. I, I suspect it's uh, mostly overhyped and, and like so much else in the UFO field has been greatly exaggerated in time. There's some really credible stories, though, along those lines. I mean, you've got the Gordon Cooper story about what he supposedly shot out at Edwards Air Force Base, uh, a disc landing, and that these guys in civilian clothes took this footage and basically vanished with it. You know, when I hear someone like Gordon Cooper talking, uh, you know, uh, to me, his story, and it's one that he told, um, I think it was in Out of the Blue, James Fox's documentary, very, very compelling. At the same time, you wonder, why haven't we seen any of this footage ever uh, sort of even get leaked or surface, George? I mean, is, is it really something where it's kept under such covers that there's no, no chance we'll ever see any of this ever? I mean, have you ever, do you ever feel in the work that you've done and the people you've spoken to, obviously you've had some pretty good access to people. Has there ever even been the sort of the possibility that you thought you were getting close to any of that footage? Have you ever looked for any of that? Oh, sure. Sure, I have. I mean, that's the holy grail, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I've never got close to it. Uh, I have no idea where it is. I, I, I don't think I've even uh, interviewed anybody who's actually sat down and seen it. It's mostly people who've heard about it right. and uh, have tried to find it themselves or, or learn more about it. Um, I think it, that there might be footage like that. There certainly is similar footage of, uh, you know, incidents um, as we were talking about national security kind of cases and encounters with the military. In the early 1990s, I went to Russia twice. Uh, we had a an op a window of opportunity, and my, my the premise I had was that was at the Perestroika and Glasnost, and and uh, the Russians were opening up on all kinds of stuff. They let out their Oswald files and things of that sort. And I thought, well, this is a unique time to maybe find out uh, what the Russians know about UFOs. Uh, our government clearly is not demonstrating any willingness to, to spill the beans. So I thought if we could uh, crack that window in Russia, gain access to Russian sources, we might be able to learn more about what our government knows about UFOs from the Russians than we will ever learn from our own government. And we did. We brought back several thousand pages of documents. They had had the secret, long-term uh, military studies of UFOs had collected thousands and thousands of case reports and eyewitness accounts and video and films and and there had been encounters with Russian warplanes. Uh, three of their planes had been shot down by UFOs. I mean, it was all being taken very seriously by their military, and they said our military and intelligence did the same thing, had the same approach to it. Where that information goes. Uh, I don't know why the government would not release it. I have a couple of ideas. I mean, it's the you know the same ones that have been kicked around before. Uh, they might have had very legitimate reasons for the secrecy in the beginning, starting right after World War II. These things are appearing in the skies. They can fly rings around our best warplanes. Uh, they didn't want to panic anybody by uh, by uh, announcing that we did not, in fact, have complete control of the the skies over our nation, and and so they decided to start studying it and figuring out what it was. I think over the years that so many lies have been told about it, uh, Area 51 is an example of that. You know, whether or not there were ever crash saucers out there, I can't say for sure. I suspect something like that was out there. Um, but you, you look at why they wouldn't open up the hangar doors and let us kick the tires on the on the UFOs or something like that. I think it's to protect their own butt to a large extent. They've told so many lies to the public and to members of Congress and to the media over the years about this, uh, purposely uh, sending us down the, um, 
the wrong path, uh, probably have stolen millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, maybe billions, from legitimate national security programs funded by Congress, and they've funneled that money instead into other things, I think these guys would go to jail. In fact, there was a sure. congressional investigator who contacted a small group of uh, one-by-one um he had the highest levels of clearances for, uh, for Congress, and he was given a mission, basically, 15 years ago to make contact and see what there was to this UFO stuff. So he contacted a number of us uh, individually over a couple-year period, and he came out to see me about Area 51, and I, I sort of gave him a briefing, and he went out there, demanded that they take him down to S-4, where Lazar had said the hangars were and everything. And he told me, although he did not find the saucers out there or anywhere else, that he felt the reason for the cover-up was these guys would go to jail. If it ever comes out, if and when it comes out, a lot of these people, high-ranking military, intel people, would go to jail for the kinds of things they've done to perpetuate a cover-up. So it might be as simple as cover your own ass kind of a thing as the reason for it goes on. Well, you, you know, you've got to wonder about that. Who really would end up getting uh, castigated or punished for this in any serious uh, material way? Now, Let's shift gears slightly here, George, because obviously your your name has been very closely associated with the infamous Skinwalker Ranch. Back when we first had you on, we talked to you a bunch about what uh, had been going on out there. And I was wondering if you could address at this point where the state of that particular property um, is at at this point. I mean, has anything been done with the data? I mean, certainly uh, there's some interesting stuff that comes up in the book, but... Whatever happened to that case? Well, um, Bob Bigelow, uh, Las Vegas uh, developer, real estate developer, hotel owner, um, still owns the property. He has a couple of caretakers out there. Um, he and I visited the, the property about a year ago, um, instigated in part by the constant intrusions, trespassers, and, and people just acting mm -hmm. like jerks. Um, you know, the level right. of activity that's described in the book, uh, The Hunt for the Skinwalker, has gone down so much. Uh, that it did not warrant having the scientific team there, and that sort of led to the demise of NIDS, which just essentially went away. Uh, there's nobody left to analyze the data. There's nobody left to really study what goes on at the ranch, and the, and the people who live there, who are there 24 hours a day, say there's been nothing like uh, what had happened during the peak of the activity while another uh, family and NIDS were, were there. Um, there has been activity in the larger area, the Uinta Basin, uh, some mutilation cases, UFO cases, daylight sightings, uh, sightings of, of disc-shaped craft, but nothing on the property itself. Bob has, uh, has now has a beefed up the security presence on the ranch over the past year. He and I flew up there, as I said, about over a year ago. Uh, because we kept getting these reports from trespassers, and we figured, I volunteered, hey, I'll go confront some of these guys. Let me at them. He brings the head of his security uh, force, a very uh, very savvy guy, uh, packing heat. We go up there. The uh, security guy is on the uh, far end, one far end of the ranch. I'm on the front gate, and Bob's in the middle going back and forth, and we're just going to wait and see what happens. And they, they equipped me with, they had all this camo gear on, and I had a... a, a uh, walkie-talkies and bear spray and uh, and a million candle power spotlight and they sat me out the front gate and I was gonna you know pass on the word you guys are not willing to uh, not welcome here the problem had become that it's become like a party spot uh, there people would come and bring uh, 12 packs of beer park at the gate gets get wiped up out of their mind drinking throw all these beer cans all over food wrappers 
and, and then wander onto the property in the middle of the night. They'll uh, use flash cube uh, photo uh, equipment, to, uh, peeking in windows in the middle of the night, and just acting like assholes, uh, basically. And uh, so Bob was a little frustrated with it. I had become frustrated with it, and so we went up there. They put me at that front gate, and sure enough, both nights that I was there, this was in, it would have been September, of, I had encounters with people. So the first the first truck comes up. There's three people in a pickup truck. They pull up right to the gate, turn off the engine. They're just starting to get out of their car, and I think I'm I'm sort of sitting in a lawn chair on the side of the road behind some bushes. I thought, well, it looks like they saw me. I pop out and turn on, flip on this million candle power light, and these people screamed, you know, <laughs> ah, and they throw the gear, the truck into gear, start it up, and burn down the, the road, just scared out of their wits. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, by the time this hits the Internet, they're going to tell, uh, <laughs> hey, we we had an, an encounter with a nine-foot-tall Bigfoot uh, with a laser beam or something, you know. I'll tell you what, we'll return in a moment to Bigfoot George Knapp, who reveals his true identity. <laughs> Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just Tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com, subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. George Knapp, of course, is an award-winning journalist, UFO investigator. We're returning to Skinwalker Ranch where George Knapp puts on his Bigfoot uniform and then... <laughs> Well, we did have, uh, I was describing this trip we took out with uh, Bob Bigelow and his security guy. We had several, a couple of encounters and, and ran people off trying to spread the message. Look, you're not welcome here. It's lucky that nobody's got hurt. You come creeping up to my uh, window with a, a flash camera in the middle of the night, you might get shot, you know. Uh, we've, you know, Bigelow has called the uh, cops, but by the time they get there, these interlopers are usually gone. So he now has a regular rotation of his security people who are out there just for the purpose of keeping people off the property. Um, you know, I do get occasional reports from people, uh, amateur investigators who go out there, they climb up on the ridge, they stake it out, and, and they describe some very wild experiences. I think it's sort of like a wishful thinking kind of a thing. You, If you drive a long way to go to Skinwalker Ranch, then by God, you're going to see a Skinwalker, whether you really do or not. Um, it's a sad thing that there isn't the, the level of activity that there was, because I know the people who are in that program, uh, Colm Kelleher, my co-author, and me, and Bob, 
would all love to see it go on, that their level of activity would justify a resumption of the study, but that just isn't the case. There are some other hot spots around the country that have popped up. Uh, Ted Phillips, I don't know if you've had him on the Marley Woods, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The similarity is the Skinwalker Ranch. I've been talking to Ted. I mean, it's amazing. It gets closer and closer to what we were uh, encountering out there uh, every time I talk to Ted. and, And I think there's a real opportunity for somebody to do some pretty solid research. I mean, he's been doing it, but I think he's been doing it on a shoestring. Uh, that's this, the same kind of stuff happening there. Uh, there is some interesting stuff going on with Bigelow, but I don't know if you want to get into that or not. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, we, we wanted to ask you about the, this news that's just come up in the last week or so about him putting some funding behind MUFON. What's, what's going on with that? Are you in the loop on that? I am somewhat. Uh, I don't know if you guys uh, listen to Coast to Coast occasionally, and I, I, I get your emails. And, and um, last fall, I had Bob on the program to make this announcement about the creation of BASS, a Bigelow Advanced Aerospace Systems, in which he was going to actively seek out information about exotic propulsion technologies to, to sort of pick up the pace, not just to study UFOs, but to put together a team that uh, is dedicated to finding out how these things fly, to collect information and figure out how they work, and maybe try to duplicate the technology, which is you know what we've heard our government has tried to do over the years. So Bigelow's doing it on his own. And one aspect of that, uh, you know, when he made the announcement on the show, I figured it was going to be big news, but it just sort of fell with a thud. Oh, that's kind of interesting because mm-hmm. I don't think people realized how significant a development that was. Now it's sort of sinking in because he's offered to uh, put money up, put money where his mouth is, uh, using MUFON as sort of the, the clearinghouse or a screening organization to figure out what uh, what projects, what incidents, what tantalizing details might be worthy of an infusion of cash and research. It's a very exciting uh, prospect. I mean, you know, Bob has always been kind of a frustrating guy for journalists and, and outsiders to deal with because he doesn't like a lot of attention. He doesn't want, need it or want it. Uh, so he just made that announcement, and then he sort of uh, then it sort of went underground. But he's been quietly putting together a staff. Uh, I think he's got well over a dozen people now working for him already, and is looking for a couple dozen more. And uh, they're ready to go. They're ready. They're entertaining uh, a number of uh, research proposals, and uh, sounds like he's going to jump into it in a big way. It's very exciting. I, I don't know that it's going to bear fruit whether they're ever going to find that the Holy Grail technology or not, but uh, at least somebody's giving it a try. So basically the idea is to go out and study um, UFO cases with the, I guess, hope that they're going to be able to figure out what the propulsion systems are behind these craft? Yeah, it's, it's a multifaceted thing. Part of it is they would study these uh, these uh, cases if it, if it shows some promise of indicating how the technology works. The other mm-hmm. part of it, and the ones that he emphasized in my interview some months ago, is that he's looking for anybody who has squirreled away a piece of Roswell or the uh, guy who knows uh, where the stuff was at Wright-Patterson or maybe the uh, uh, backyard inventor who's created some kind of an anti-gravity machine or the disgruntled former NSA guy who knows where the the secret files are, that kind of thing. Uh, He is openly seeking anybody who has solid info, whether it's uh, UFO eyewitnesses or whether it's former government insiders. It's... uh, I, I'm, I'm really curious about how, how the government views this thing, since Bob is a- actively recruiting uh, people to spill the beans. Well, it gets so complicated when you talk about this. I mean, I, I can tell you that 
in doing a, some work with NARCAP on the O'Hare case, one of the things that, that really struck me personally and for me provided a bit of a clue and when we talk about propulsion systems, and, and I know I've talked about this on the show before, but um, there was something about the O'Hare episode when this craft supposedly shot through the cloud cover, left the hole. What seemed to be the case was that this thing uh, did not make any kind of sound, no sonic boom of any sort. And uh, this actually sort of falls in line with uh, an episode that I had growing up, uh, which was a, a sighting of a UFO craft, very close proximity. And, and I watched this thing shoot straight up, and it made absolutely no sound, no sonic boom of any sort which to me uh, was an indication that this thing, and, and again, I didn't think of it at the time, I was a, was a kid, but looking at the NARCAP episode, doing some, in, some analysis work on some of the photographic, supposed photographic evidence that surfaced from that, and there was an interesting story behind that in a presentation I did at a UFO event last year that I, I went public with, and it generated a, it got Bill Burns all hot and bothered um, when <laughs> I was showing some of this uh, photographic work that we had, had come up with. But anyway, there is something about... The idea that these things are not fully material when they move at high speed. If you're, if, if you're in a craft, you're in an object that is not actually displacing air. That indicates that this whole, what we normally think of as the rules of physics, where you have resistance and you have something that you know will break the sound barrier and create a sonic boom. We, we, there have been some interesting things along uh, those lines recently, in fact, out in California and just uh, as when we're taping this right now, a couple of nights ago, here in New York, in Westchester County, there was this huge sonic boom that happened. A lot of reports about it. Nobody knows what happened. Nobody knows what the actual source is. But there is something about the idea that these things are not fully material, like we think of them as being solid when they're moving quickly. And, you know, it, it's interesting, George, because then that kind of connects back into the whole discussion of what we originally started the show with uh, today, which was... This idea that, you know, are we talking about interplanetary visitors? Are we talking about interdimensional visitors? And this idea that, that occurs to me that, well, when you've got something that can basically move between star systems, the only way you could even do that would be essentially to bend space-time. There's no other way, any kind of conventional method of transportation we can think of, uh, you know, to just try to, get, you know, gain large speeds. There are all sorts of problems with that, but when you bend space-time, if you change the rules of the game, then all of a sudden, a lot of the limitations that you have are no longer apply. And so looking at it from that point of view, I, it's interesting to think that Bigelow is confident that we know enough about even the nature of physical reality to be able to have any kind of a handle on what those propulsion systems are. I think there's a, there's a problem there with just our limits of understanding of our own physical reality. I'll tell you well, what, before you're... we put limits on anything that we can do... Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. 
That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We are talking to George Knapp, investigative journalist, UFO investigator, and we're looking now at the frontiers of science and how far can we go in figuring out what maybe makes those UFOs tick. So, George, you want to provide that well, answer? You know, I think the example you use of, of O'Hare is a good example of the kind of thing that, 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 that Bigelow would, would want to uh, dig into with this new undertaking, Bass. Uh, you uh, very uh, uh, elegantly described um, uh, what this craft did, and, and I think that example would explain why it would be worth Bigelow's time to go out and talk to eyewitnesses and, and research individual cases because it, you know, the answers to this probably does require out of the box thinking. We, you know, the way you describe it as uh, not being an entirely material uh, object, you know, that might not occur to anybody until you have a case like this where it is so clearly demonstrated. So then he has his scientists start thinking about how would we accomplish this? And maybe it is too far beyond us, but you, you can't start until you, you get the idea. And maybe right, sure. that's what these cases do is provide an inspiration or get them on the right track of thinking about how to accomplish something like this. Now, whether or not we can get it, I don't know. But, man, that's a great case. And I, you know what? I'd be happy to pass that along to Colm and the, and the other folks who are working with them if you'd like. The thing that struck me about that O'Hare case, as I said, it, it ties back to a personal episode I had back in the 70s in Somerset, New Jersey. And I've talked about it on the show. There's no need to repeat it now. I'll be happy to talk to you about it off, off the air. But I basically, at very close proximity, I witnessed a craft moving. And again, it's that, I've described it on the show before, it's this idea that you have something that's at a full standstill. It's absolutely stationary in the air at low altitude and then basically shoots straight up where there is no sense of acceleration. It goes from absolutely motionless to full speed in one shot. There is no sense of something gaining acceleration. When you see that, there's no way to actually describe that. It's a visual that has stayed with me ever since. And when you see that, um, it, it's one of these things where this is when you know that you're actually having, I, I think, a true paranormal episode happening in front of you because there is no way to, to actually relate it to anything that you know. And this is that I think that when these kinds of things happen, the fact that there's a disconnect between the way that you know the eyes see it and the brain processes it, sometimes this is actually, I think, misinterpreted, or I shouldn't say misinterpreted. It's, it's seen through this filter of high strangeness, and those are the, the two words that come up a lot when we talk about the very fringes of this stuff. And I think that when people talk about high strangeness, in some ways, that's a way to verbalize this disconnect between the eye and the brain when this is happening that people perceive this as having some ele element of high strangeness, which, which puts it outside of even what we consider to be a paranormal experience and makes it something that is almost now surreal in nature and, and makes people think, now, wait a minute, maybe I can't even trust my own senses with regards to this. 
and even muddies the whole discussion even more. I mean, this is just, you get to the point where you start to have these breakdowns of what good words will do you in describing the stuff, or being able to convey to somebody, something went from being, you know, fully motionless to full speed, no acceleration. There's no reference for that. There's no place in nature where we see that occur, really, in any way that you, your brain can make use of it. You know, uh, the, I think the, the famous quote from Arthur C. Clarke, uh, you know, if you yeah. we did find an alien civilization with sufficiently advanced technology, it would appear to us as, as equivalent to magic. And that's, I think that's what you're describing. Jacques Vallée, back to him, who, I, you know, I can't say enough good stuff about the guy. You know, something else, that a theme he developed years ago that really struck a chord with me is uh, the idea that these UFO appearances are, are affecting us on some other level, a subconscious level, that, it's, that they appear to people uh, not necessarily Necessarily, the the importance isn't the sighting itself, but uh, a long-term kind of a I don't know if it's a plan, but certainly a long-term effect on our our collective consciousness over and over again that tends to be reinforced in ways that we don't immediately understand. Um, you know, obviously that incident you had had a powerful, a profound imp effect on you, even uh, this many years later. And, and there are millions of people all over the world who've had that same kind of a, a similar kind of experience, who've had similar profound effects in their lives and and uh, i think jacques might have been on to something that that uh, you know I, I don't know if there's a grand specific plan an acculturation process a conditioning process you know uh, if if it wasn't intention intended to be that it certainly seems to be having that effect well at that point you have to start to start to wonder i think he referred to it as a control system yes um yeah and you have to start to wonder though at what point do we use our own cultural conditioning to try to put some sort of a context around this that we can make any kind of use out of? You know, uh, because we, as human beings, like to think of ourselves as the center of the universe. And one of the things I also got from that little bit of that MUFON meeting that I, that I saw you speaking on on YouTube was this idea that you said that, um, you know, maybe... Our egos couldn't handle finding out the truth of this because maybe it would really destroy our, that, that sense that we have of being sort of this central focal point that certainly things like religion have always, you know, supported this idea of, of being special. You know, what if we found out that, well, maybe we're not that special at all. Maybe, in fact, uh, we're just part of this genetic bank that is the planet Earth that maybe is what is actually of interest to these beings. Um, or like uh, Fort said that we're property or something, or yeah. uh, other people have said they use us to harvest souls, or maybe they're here like as uh, we're the the drive-in movie theater of the cosmos or something, and look at the goofy earthlings and what they're going to do next. Or you know, <laughs> you talk bringing it back to disclosure and exopolitics and the idea yeah. that suddenly they they're going to spill all the secrets. You know, I don't believe it's going to happen for a variety of reasons. One of being that uh, maybe maybe there really is something that we're not ready to handle. Right? We you know. You and uh, the, the three of us think we're ready to handle it. We're interested in these topics. We want to know, and and you hear that everywhere you go at the conferences and and in these circles. Uh, we want to know. We're ready for it. Well, maybe not. Maybe the ultimate truth would be so disturbing that we couldn't handle it. I mean, this dimensional stuff that that we got into. Uh, the possibility that it's some kind of a dimensional doorway at Skinwalker Ranch. People are not ready for that. Uh, you know, it, it was a it was a major shift. Just uh, the idea that we're well, the Earth is not the center of the universe, and uh, and that uh, you know the Milky Way isn't even the center of the universe, and and uh, we're just out on the on the sticks, uh, cosmically speaking. And 
people have had trouble with that over the years and that we're not the, the apple of God's eye. Now, what if you got to get your mind around the idea of parallel dimensions where there are beings living among us, around us. They can see us, but we can't see them. They can interact with our world, and we can't interact with theirs. Do they see us in the shower? Do they see us in the bedroom? Do they, you know, do they pay any attention to us at all? People are going to have trouble with that. And if there is a, a, an actual cover-up, maybe... Maybe it's something like that, covering something up that really we're not quite ready to handle. Well, if they see us in the shower, it might be just like washing a dog. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reason to believe that that, that is certainly a possibility. Of course, when we talk about this stuff, it's always important to distinguish between possibilities and probabilities. And this is where, of course, sadly, there's this idea that every opinion is valid when discussing this stuff. You see this in the New Age realm, where people throw around the term energy very often without having a good idea of what it really means. Now, you know, this we have to bring up, I mean, you brought up coast to coast. So let's talk about this for a minute, because obviously you've had a sort of a, a long time involvement with the show. I think a lot of people perceive that a lot of what happens on there ends up being entertainment. Is this, George, a situation where we're forever going to be stuck in a rut where any kind of discussion around this ultimately in order to appeal to the masses has to be framed in entertainment for it to be attractive to the masses? Is any kind of really deep discussion of these topics always going to be limited to a very small subset of people? What do you think probably. about that? Probably. I mean, I, probably. And, I, you know, I've seen some of the stuff that you guys have, uh, the issues you've raised about Coast and the broad spectrum of guests uh, that are on the program, some credible, some not. And I, I think the, you raise legitimate questions. I mean, it's something that I know the producers have grappled with. I mean, they would like every night to be a, a Richard Dolan-type character on the on the show to credibly go through a, a pile of information. Uh, but the fact is, it is an entertainment medium. They, they do have a very big tent uh, approach to a whole variety of topics. It's sort of taken the cue from Art Bell way back when. I think you can be both entertaining and illuminating at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. I know my own shows that I have a, a great deal of uh, to say about the guests that I get to talk to. I don't go into necessarily belittling or grilling some of these guys that come on, even though um, I don't uh, see eye to eye with everybody who uh, has been on the guest uh, guest on the program with me anyway. It's more like an approach of uh, somebody you have in your living room, and since they're a guest, you let them make their case, have their say, and you, you ask some questions. And, you know, sometimes it can get a little tense, but for the most part, uh, I, I tend to let them just uh, tell their story, and I'll, I'll uh, probe it here and there and look for weaknesses, but I don't I don't uh, grill them. At least that's the approach I take. And I know that uh, that for a lot of people, and again, it goes back to our media topic and looking, looking at this, a lot of people would look at Coast to Coast and look at all the big spectrum of, uh, of guests and think, well, uh, and tar the whole thing with the same brush. Is it? Good gosh, it's it's got to be goofy. It can't have any credibility if one day they've got a, a Richard Dolan type guy on, and the next day they're uh, uh, channeling ancient space aliens or something. Um, it's it's a tough nut. But I'll tell you that that show, good gosh, does it grind up the material? I mean, to to put somebody in there who is interesting every night of the week for four hours, it's tough. I think those producers work pretty hard to try to keep it interesting, and and not every guest works. I know I, I only do two shows a month, and. Um, and not every guest works, and sometimes you think you're going to hit one out of the park and it just falls completely flat. Uh, some people are just uh, just fall apart on the air or just not very sure. credible. It's a tough nut. I mean, it's a it's it's a it's a tough uh, tough project. It, it's a lot harder than it might sound to put that thing together. 
it, it sounds difficult. I mean, we, we in doing the Paracast, I know that you know, we certainly had our shows that have worked and the ones that have not worked at all. It, it can be a real problem, and we're just doing it once a week. The idea of doing it, you know, every night and having four hours to fill, it's daunting. It's real daunting, and especially, I mean, and it's a fine balance. Look, on the Paracast, we, we, we've created this situation where we every now and then will bring someone on and uh, do the most basic armchair stuff. We had a guy late last year who had been on Coast to Coast last summer and made a lot of claims and hadn't been pressed about any of his claims. We had him on the show, and essentially uh, it turns out this guy was an actual criminal, a criminal, oh. stealing money from people and doing some very bad things, real bad stuff. And we had Frank Warren come on with us, and uh, it, it was the most basic due diligence that we did, what I would definitely categorize as armchair research, to completely discredit everything this guy had to say. And, and we did this on the show. And it's interesting how that plays out because you have some sex segment of the, the audience that really appreciates that. They're hungry for that. And then you have other people who get very annoyed by that. They don't want you to be uh, critical in any way because essentially the idea is, well, everybody should have a voice and everybody's opinion should be listened to. And sadly, you get to the point where you have to tell people, look, some opinions perhaps are more valid or more valuable or more justified than others. But, of course, in our society, there is a sense that, well, everybody's got to have their say. Uh, well, everybody can have their say, but they don't have to have a, their say on the on my radio show anyway or on yours. <laughs> I think you guys have a really cool niche there in, in doing that kind of stuff. It's much, it's very much needed in the field, and and uh, you carry it off, man. You do. It's good work, and it's something that needs to be done. Weeding things out and and exposing people for who they are. It's not always possible to do that on coast to coast. It's a different kind of a mission uh, and a different kind of an audience. But um, we try to do a good job. But well, we're also glad to have you there. Thanks. Well, well, I enjoy it. I get a kick out of it. If I can go to work and, and uh, do a job and I don't have to wear pants, that's that's fun, you know. <laughs> I'm just I getting thought you're, I pants. thought you were going to say you didn't have to wear a tie, but oh, man, <laughs> you're not wearing pants. Oh, boy. Do you do this yeah. from the studio or what? <laughs> I did it from a studio here uh, for uh, a while, uh, stationed in Las Vegas, but they kept forgetting that I was coming. And I'd show up on Sunday night and there's nobody there, and then the, the <laughs> shows would get canceled. So they installed a, uh, a a portable system at a private location. I'll put it that way. And we've had some technical problems with that as well. It's it's now in the process of being moved to another location, and uh, it's it's nice that I don't have to travel across town to go to a, a studio. It's much closer to home. Um, I would tell you where it is, but I don't want people showing up and That's banging right. on the door while the show is going on. Well, if you invite us privately, we'll go there, but we will not use our cameras, our digital cameras <laughs> and our my iPhone. I'll turn the camera off, make sure it's not done. Okay. Hey, I get a kick out of doing the show. It's it's different. It's a different medium. It's much different. It's riding a riding a bull, though, at times. You know, I, I'm interested in UFOs. I only get to do two shows a month, so at least one of them is going to be about the UFO topic in some aspect. And all the grief I get, you know, you can you can never please everybody, that's for sure. And uh, people will say, oh, geez, UFOs. I don't want to hear about UFOs. And to which I respond, well, man, you're listening to the wrong show because, I mean, that's sort of a core topic here. It's tough to please everybody, but, you know, you got to try. Well, the other thing is, too, if UFOs are real, if what we've been talking about for most of our lives, David and myself in different ways, and what you've been exploring for so many years, if it's real, it's possibly the biggest story 
of the decade of the century since, well, as far back as we could remember. Because right now, everything else is going on is so heavy to deal with, economics and all that, that we really don't have time to worry about whether UFOs are real, although in the end it may represent a more important story. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to George Knapp, investigative journalist, and we've been focusing on lots of fascinating UFO-related information. We focused originally on Area 51 and Bob Lazar and all the unusual before characters. Before you move on, Gene, Gene, before you move on, there's actually something you just said I want to ask George a question about. It's interesting that you, you, talk, you, know, you, you mentioned, Gene, all of these problems that we're facing now, you know, certainly the financial meltdown and so forth, but um, George, do you get the sense that, like I've heard other people say, and, and I wonder what, what you think about this, that when things get tough, when when the economy gets real problematic, things get rocky, people have a lot of stress, do you think they turn to these topics like UFOs, ghosts, the paranormal, as a sense of escape? Do you think that the audience for these topics increases in times like this? I guess it's possible, but I, I haven't seen any real definitive pattern in that regard. I mean, the interest in this, it, it uh, waxes and wanes at different mm -hmm. times, and I don't think it's related necessarily to the economy. I know a lot of people would like to dismiss it and use it, explain that it in that way as a dismissive um, a notion, you know, oh gosh, it's just people reacting to the times. It's the same kind of a view that uh, this is people trying to find God in their own lives, right. except for they, they're using the guise of aliens instead, and I, I don't... You know, I think there's a lot of different reasons people are interested in it, but it, it, this interest in this topic has gone on forever. And it, it, uh, the economy changes, wars change, come and go, and things like that, but UFOs remain. And I agree with you that it, uh, the importance of the subject. I think it is the biggest story of all time, which is part of the appeal and the reason that I've stayed uh, active in it for so long. The fact that there aren't other mainstream journalists uh, networks who pay some attention to it. it. It's their loss because it is a big story. It is such a rich area, uh, rich in lore and mythology and rich in facts as well. And it's a fascinating undertaking to separate the two. It needs uh, a Woodward Bernstein. It needs 60 minutes, something like that, to dig into it and use their influence and power. But that's not going to happen. It's it's not. Uh, and it's too bad. I, it's, it's amazing to me that more journalists, more serious journalists, uh, radio, TV, whatever, uh, people like yourselves don't jump into it with both feet 
and look for what really is going on, because it is big. Now, maybe the economy is a more pressing problem. We need to worry about bread on the table. We don't have to solve the UFO mystery today, but by golly, if and when it ever is fully explained and explored, I think it would be the biggest uh, story of all time, and it's going to change everything. Well, if there is disclosure, I felt, and I think David might agree with me, that we have no control over the circumstances of that disclosure. It's going to be done on their terms, not ours. And if that's the case, it could happen at any time, at any place. Something, some event can occur that is clearly unexplainable, clearly identified as something not of this earth, not of this dimension, whatever. It could happen at any time. It could. The, you know, the proverbial uh, saucer on the White House lawn kind of a thing. But, you know, the lesson I have learned, one of the lessons from Skinwalker Ranch is, and, and it sort of goes back to uh, things that Valet has written over the years, and what Whitley Strieber once said is that the secrecy, the cover-up, begins with them, the visitors, the aliens, whatever the heck they are. They call the shots. That was our, uh, the experience at Skinwalker Ranch. They, uh, Bob Bigelow calls it performances. Uh, an earlier writer called it uh, Utah's UFO display, because that's what it is, a display. They decide who gets to see it. They decide how much they get to see, under what circumstances. They give us the glimpses, and we, we are left to ask uh, why, why some of us are allowed to see it and why others are not. Valet had a term for it. Uh, he called it a, a deliberate pattern of unbelievability, I think, where we see these things that don't seem to make sense. They happen over and over again, and, and they don't add up. And that actually, in, in psychology, is sort of a, a good learning tool, but it has to take place over a long period of time. Uh, I sure am going to be frustrated if, if I end up dying an old man or a not-so-old man and don't have the answers, and I'm sure you guys feel the same way. Man, it drives me crazy. I see some of these UFO researchers who've been into it for 50 years. They die. They're no closer to answering any of the big questions than when they started. That is very frustrating, and, and uh, I suspect that that is going to be the case when we pass over into some other realm, but uh, hope hope otherwise. Well, you see, of course, there are some of those researchers really on in years right now. We look at John Keel, who has been in the greatest of health in recent years, and he is somebody in his 70s. And we've talked, of course, to Bud Hopkins, who is not a, quite a youth anymore. And, you know, I've been in touch with a few people who've been around UFO research for a long time who are suffering from different ailments. And maybe we kind of hope that maybe the UFO knots will come down here whoever and whatever they are, and help cure us of our ills. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we have all this wishful thinking going on in the UFO field, because it's felt if there is an advanced power, and we're not talking necessarily about God here, but just a race that's maybe thousands or millions of years ahead of us, they have all the answers. They have the answers to energy, free energy. They have the answers to prolonging your life. And we're just kind of muddling along here trying to figure out what's going on. But something that you had said earlier in the show, and I guess we never really covered past it, back to Area 51, and we don't have a lot of time left, but I just think about it all the time here when that particular part of the world, and obviously you're much closer to it than I am, when I think about it, I say, you know what? Is there really any evidence of all of any activity involving alien craft? At Area 51, those are all secret weapons or secret aircraft. 
It could be. You know, there's no definitive evidence. I don't have a piece of a saucer. I, I've got eyewitness statements. I've got a couple of fuzzy photos, some videos. The credibility of the witnesses goes from very high to very low. And uh, no, there's no definitive evidence at all. Uh, you know, the best you could say is that if they had it, that would be where they would test it and store it. I, if they ever had it out there, I'm sure it's not there anymore. There's too many eyes on it, too much uh, uh, public interest focused on the base. And as I said, if they were using it as a ruse, that was a terrible mistake. But, yeah, I think it's possible that all those programs, everything that we've seen out there is is uh, everything that everybody's reported might be a legitimate Earth origin technology, secret stuff. Uh, ben Rich, the, the, the late, great uh, Ben Rich of Lockheed Skunk Works, he sort of hinted a couple of times before he died that we've already got the ability to go to the stars, that anything you can imagine now, we've got it doesn't mean we're necessarily developing and using it, but we've got it. Ben Rich also privately conceded to some friends of his in, in letters that I've seen that, you know, that he believes in UFOs of, of both kinds, unfunded opportunities and more exotic things from somewhere else. I got a chance to interview him one time when they, inter they rolled out the F-117, and I asked him the, persist the question, the persistent rumors that F-117, the stealth technology, might have been based on something that we got from aliens, from crashed saucers or whatever. And he kind of smiled and paused and, nope, just good old earthbound know-how. You know? But I know that he shared uh, his statements that he believed that uh, we had made advances based on stuff that we got from somewhere else. Whether that constitutes proof, probably not. It's not the same as having a, a cigarette lighter from an alien spacecraft, and I'm not sure we're, we're ever going to get that. I, I can't prove that we had that stuff out there, and I probably never will be. I just know it's a legitimate story that's worth pursuing, if for no other reason than to shake the cage and see what falls out. The other thing is here, if they had the secret weapon from the aliens or the secret aircraft, how would they move it out in a way that we wouldn't see it, especially because all the eyes are on Area 51? What would they do? Do everything underground? Sure. I mean, you know, that test site area out there is gigantic. I mean, you, maybe you, you put it underground somewhere and just leave it there for a while and come back when things die down in a couple of years, or uh, assuming they ever do. They're pretty crafty out there. I, I had an interview one time with uh, our late Senator Howard Cannon, who was he had four terms in Washington. He essentially helped build Area 51 and Nellis. Uh, he was very close friends with the guys at, at uh, Lockheed. And when he lost his last re-election bid, they allowed him to pilot an SR-71. They gave him a flight in it. He was a brigadier general. He was very close to Barry Goldwater, talked about Wright-Patterson and all that stuff with Goldwater, and had a closet interest in UFOs. And I, I did the last TV interview with him before he died. And he sort of got right up to the edge of saying that, that we had that stuff out there. But what he did say in definitive terms is that, you know, I asked him about the idea of secrets. Because when people talk about UFOs, I don't know, nobody could keep a secret like that. He says, well, let me tell you, we've kept some pretty big secrets out there, and we still have some secrets that uh, are being kept. We can and do keep secrets. And so the idea that uh, everything, the government always leaks like a sieve and secrets can't be kept, secrets even of a magnitude like this can't be kept, is false. And and I agree with the, the late senator. I think secrets can be kept. They are being kept. And uh, just like the aliens or the visitors who decide what we get to see and how much, I think that's what happens with the government on, on topics as sensitive as this one. Quick question, George, about Bigelow. I think there's a sense that um, a lot of the information that was gathered at Skinwalker was sort of a, a tucked away. It wasn't really shared 
uh, with this new initiative to, to put some money behind MUFON to look into these potential alternate propulsion systems, do you get the sense that this is going to be the kind of thing where he's going to be more open about sharing information that might be gleaned that maybe is not directly related to propulsion systems? Or do you think that this is going to be, like a lot of what he does, fairly secretive? I don't know. I mean, he is a by nature a secretive guy, plays his cards pretty close to the chest. He has said that the information, whatever they get, would be made public. I think that's part of what the deal with MUFON is, is that they will have access to whatever information comes in and would be allowed to share it. I'm not sure that that applies to proprietary information about secret exotic uh, space propulsion technologies. I can't imagine Bob uh, spending all this money and then letting that go and just sharing it with the public. I hope that he uh, sticks to his his vow to make this information public. I'm going to meet with him, I hope, to talk exactly about that and see what he, exactly what he has in mind. And maybe you guys want to have me back on after I do that. I know he doesn't want to do any interviews right now, right. but I think the MUFON people are able to talk about it. As for the Skinwalker Ranch, you know, I was privy to that information while the study was going on. And I know there is a the sense that there's lots of good stuff that didn't come out. If it's good stuff that didn't come out, it's nothing that I, I heard of. I'm nothing like any, any kind of... Uh, technology or anything like that. I mean, I get those, got those reports all during that time period, the same ones that were circulated to his other staff and board members, and, and it was driving me crazy because I couldn't talk about it, but I didn't see any of that. And most of, pretty much most of the incidents and the most interesting episodes were, were detailed in our book. I don't, I don't think, as far as I know, there's nothing really big that was held back. You are right in one sense in that specifics uh, from those incidents, uh, I don't know where it is. I mean, there's there's files that he has, and it's not any kind of vault or anything where he's keeping it off limits. It's a matter of just having stashed it and put it away, and somebody has to dig it up and find it. Now that Bass is picking up to some extent where Nid's left off, maybe that will happen. I, I will propose it. I, I'll tell you that. I, I will propose it when I speak with those guys. Good. Now, I think we'd love to have you back at some point to talk about uh, the ongoing work that they're doing because uh, it's nice to see somebody throwing some sort of resources behind this. It really what is. I'll do is I'll, I'm going to talk to Colm Kelleher. Certain events may have occurred that will require, and we're happy to have you on, require you returning here to <laughs> maybe update us on the new development. Certainly, I'm very curious, and David is, I'm sure, also about MUFON, because I think MUFON has been very stagnant for many years in terms of getting things done. So now if they have accesses to a resource with a lot deeper pockets, hopefully a lot of things that they're doing will bear fruit where they haven't in the past. Well, I hope so. You know, they've got some good new blood in there, and uh, guys with uh, James Carrion and uh, folks with a lot of energy and uh, ambitious uh, an ambitious agenda, and you're right, uh, nothing helps that with like a little bit of financial backing. And uh, I would suggest that you maybe contact Carrion to see if he'd come on and talk about this, and I'll even pitch it, as I said, to Dr. Kelleher and see if he's interested in talking to you guys at some point. That'd be great. We will. Okay. Before we let you go, is there any place we can get a hold of you or our listeners can get a hold of you and find out more of the things that you do? Well, you can always email me at uh, gnap at klastv.com. I don't have any kind of a website. Uh, we do have a Hunt for the Skinwalker website, but we haven't done any real new stuff in a while there. But you can check out that that material. And then uh, i got some pretty interesting uh, projects in the works. As I said, this year is the 20th anniversary of that the whole Lazar scenario, so we'll be 
trying to get a hold of him and see if there's any update we can do on the story and, and sort of commemorate the anniversary because, I mean, gosh, you know, 20 years ago, not many people outside the state of Nevada had ever heard of Area 51, and now it's a pretty much known all over the world. So um, I'll probably be doing some stuff on that this, this, this coming year. I wonder if the movie Independence Day made people aware more of Area 51. Oh, I, I do. I think it was. I was at a special screening of that movie, and I remember being in there in the scene where, you know, the uh, president gets told that Area 51 is real, and they, I, there's people in front of me in line. They poke each other in the ribs and go, see, I told you it was real, as if, like, all these stories, the news stories have been done. That didn't mean anything, but once you saw it in a movie, well, gosh, it's got to be real then. Well, yes, but we also know that you can take a Apple PowerBook, which isn't even made anymore, and save the world by connecting wirelessly to an alien spaceship. Oh, you're going you're gonna to have to tell, fill me in on that one. I didn't know about that one. Do you remember the computer that Jeff Goldberg Oh, that's was right. Using? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's it right. was an early yeah. Apple PowerBook. <laughs> and remember, he was typing things in that computer, and somehow he was hacking by feeding a computer virus well, no, to the alien just, computer. No, no, no. You see, you just misinterpreted the whole thing. It's just proof oh. that the Mac OS is deployed around the galaxy, where Windows is a much nichier product. <laughs> Windows only dominates on Earth, not on a galactic level. Well, you'd think they'd use that as a selling point for the thing. You know? Well, I, I think they might, they might have thought about it, but they thought it was a little too, quote-unquote, out there. Boom, boom, ah. Well, this was a hey, lot guys. of time that, of course, where Apple was getting a lot of publicity, and then they didn't always get the models out. Like, if you remember Mission Impossible, the first one with Tom Cruise, and they were using a power book, but uh, that model didn't get out in time. I think George wants to pull the escape hatch now. He's, he's got to really do, George. <laughs> we don't let yeah, people yeah. do that. David's had a long day, too. We don't let people leave the show, but we'll just tell you this. This has been a fun session, and I was looking at our archives because we just updated our website that it's well over a year and a half since we had you on before. That's not right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, we won't uh, we won't wait that long for the next time. I'll, uh, I'll call you up when I got something worth uh, worth talking about. Excellent. Sure. Thank you, sir. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.